From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. We're continuing to feature major stories impacting students as the back-to-school season is underway. Today, we confront one troubling question. Why are students being fined by police and schools? Across the country, students are being disciplined through tickets with shocking frequency, burdening them with hefty fees and subjecting them to the juvenile justice system, all of which greases the skids on the school-to-prison pipeline. The state of Illinois has become a hotbed for ticketing in schools, to the extent that legislators and activists have proposed a House bill to end the practice. But as we await the passage of such a law, students continue to pay the price. Last year, the Chicago Tribune and ProPublica published an investigation on this issue, finding that nearly 12,000 tickets were written to Illinois students over three school years, with Black students being twice as likely to be ticketed compared to their white peers. I do believe it was targeted in Naperville. There's not really that many percentages of Black people that live there, and then especially in the high schools. So I feel like if it was another white girl, this would have never gotten as far as it is now because I am African-American. 20-year-old Amara Harris is one of those students. She's entering her senior year at Spelman College, finally free from an alleged theft fine that she received as a high school student in Naperville, Illinois. Now, the state is considering legislation to end fees and fines in schools, on the backbone of cases like Amara's. She joined us to explain how a misunderstanding over a pair of lost AirPods led to a trial four years in the making. Then, Gada Makushi, an advocacy and political strategist with the ACLU of Pennsylvania, discusses her research on ticketing in Pittsburgh public schools and how we can disrupt school-based pathways to the juvenile justice system. Amara, welcome to At Liberty, and thank you so much for joining me. Um, Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy that I can be here. So I have to start, Amara, by saying congratulations on winning your case. It was a really long time coming, and you certainly should have never had to go through it. But I'm so glad that you fought for yourself and that you won. I just want to start by asking you how you feel now that you're done with the case and and the ticket that you'd been given so many years ago. I feel very relieved, you know, with having the case on me. I was also in school, so it was stressful having to deal with the case as well as attend school. Sometimes I had to miss classes because I had to deal with the case. But now that it's over, I'm able to now fully focus on school and trying to you know, get back to who I was before, like, this whole situation happened, you know? And when you say who you were before this whole situation happened, what would you say about yourself? How would you describe yourself before all of this happened? And what parts of you are you hoping that you feel again? Before, I was very, like, outgoing, trusting. You know, I hung out with friends I was like a go-getter. I wanted to do everything. But after 
you know, the situation, I fell into like a slight depression state. So especially too as well with COVID happening. Mm. And then I don't trust people as much anymore, but I'm slowly, you know, getting back to it. That's really understandable that you would feel that way, given everything that you were put through. And I think that speaks to so much of why school fees and fines and and this ticketing system that plagues a lot of our schools across the country is so punitive and and wrong. So I really appreciate you, you sharing that with us. Going into the trial, what made you want to go to trial? Did you think that you'd be successful? Were you hoping to clear your name? Why I went to trial is because I knew I was innocent and then proving that to others that I was innocent, there was nothing really for me to, you know, be afraid of if I just spoke my truth because no one really heard my truth. So speaking it out and then letting, you know, the jurors decide if it's true or not, you know, that was like the, I would say like the main reason why. I want to go back to the beginning if we can. This whole situation came about, as you mentioned, four years ago, and it started over a pair of misplaced AirPods. Amar, I'm wondering if you could take us back to 2019 and describe what led you to being accused of theft. What happened at school that day? What happened was I went to school like I normally do on any other day, and um, I... The time that I noticed that my AirPods were not with me was in first period. And what I did was I retraced my step back to the location that I was in that morning and found them in that same spot and just went about my day after finding them. And at what point did it become clear to you that you were being accused of theft? It wasn't until my dean came up to me and said that a girl said that I took her AirPods. I was confused the whole entire time, so. And when the dean said that, did you think that it would lead to a ticket? How did you respond in that moment? Like I said, I was still confused. Didn't understand what he was talking about or any type of theft when I had these already, these were mine. What the pair that I had, which I thought were mine, were mine. So I didn't think it would lead to a ticket over, you know. And what happened from those initial conversations with your dean to when you actually got the ticket? Did you feel like you were fairly heard out during these conversations about the misplaced AirPods? Or did you have a feeling that no matter what you said or did, you were going to be given a ticket? After I spoke with my dean that same day, I spoke with the vice superintendent, Nancy Voice, and she had told me that there wasn't going to be any type of consequences. So in the back of my head or what she told me, I never thought that I would get like consequences or any ticket or knew that it would lead up to that because she had reassured me that there 
that nothing was going to happen and that they were going to look into it. So you had been told that there was no consequence and then the school resource officer, Juan Leon, who issued a ticket. So you're given a ticket and you have to pay $100. Well, at first it wasn't $100 when they gave I never saw the ticket. My mom was the one who saw the ticket. So at first I said it was $500. It only went down to $100, like as time went by and stuff like that. So it was initially $500. Yes, it was $500 when they first gave the ticket to my mom. More than the cost of a pair of AirPods. So it's $500. Amara, you need to pay this. Um, your family needs to pay this. What made you sure that you wanted to proceed and, and fight the, the ticket? I knew I wanted to because I didn't do anything wrong. You know, I didn't take or, yes, or take, still, whichever word like they want to use. Um, I didn't take anything from her and I wasn't going to pay for something that I didn't do. Mm-hmm. Because me paying that would be admitting that I took those AirPods from her and I didn't. So that's why I didn't pay and decided to, you know, go through the process of fighting the ticket. And, you know, I think it's really not easy to stick up for yourself, (laughs) especially when people that you're up against, like the prosecutor in your trial, the local law enforcement, try to downplay your situation. How did receiving this ticket impact you and your plans and, and your goals post high school? This ended up being, you know, a, a big part of the end of your high school experience. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? I wanted to get out of like high school fast because you know things spread, especially like in the high school, and I didn't like being labeled as something that I wasn't. Mm-hmm. So when I had the opportunity to graduate early, I took it because I was able, you know, to just be out of that environment. It wasn't a very like good environment because, you know, you always I always had the principal trying to look over me or the SRO trying to look over me. I, it just didn't feel like a safe environment for me. And then two after, you know, high school, I still had it over me. So I wasn't really like away. So even when I went to college, my first year, I didn't go away. I stayed because I had the case. Two, it was COVID. So I couldn't really go anywhere. But still, I withheld from being on campus and attended all my classes online. So I couldn't miss any court date, you know, just in case they tried to, because um, sometimes, the court date will change or it would be a one will pop up magically that I had to be there mandatory. So it just restricted me a lot from basically having a college experience. And then, you know, as I said before, a depression fell over me. So I was always in the house and all I did was just mm-hmm. work, go to school and, you know, be at home. Did you feel targeted? I think uh, yes, I do believe it was targeted. I don't know if it's the word, but I feel like it was racially motivated mm. because there's in Naperville, there's not really that 
many percentage of Black people that live there. And then especially in the high schools, I feel like if it was another white girl, this would have never gotten as far as it is now. But because I am African-American and a girlhood, it was racially motivated, I believe. So ProPublica has reported extensively on your case. And along with the Chicago Tribune, they released a sweeping investigation this year called The Price Kids Pay, which reveals that the system of justice in schools makes it nearly impossible for students to avoid fees and fines like you were faced with. They also found that Black students were twice as likely to be ticketed than white students. But it seemed like in your trial, no one brought up race as a factor, despite the data being pretty overwhelming, even in our conversation with a policy analyst out of the ACLU of Pennsylvania. The the data bears out to support your experience that Black girls are criminalized at higher rates than their white peers or their white and male peers. And so, you know, it's it's more than a feeling. But I guess I'm wondering, you know, given that experience and given what we know nationally about this situation, did that play in any part of your calculus to stand up for yourself? Was that part of the reason behind fighting this? Yes, I can say at first, you know, I didn't know what well, I knew what I was fighting for. I was fighting for my innocence and, you know, proving just, you know, just fighting for my innocence. But as the time went on and with speaking to my mom and everything, I did think, yes, um, I'm fighting for myself, but also I'll be fighting for other Black kids that come into Naperville North that will most likely be under their administration, either the deans or the principal. Even if they are gone, you don't know the next wave of administration that might come in and try to do it to another Black kid. And, you know, them being scared of a ticket or it going on their record, they'll probably just pay it. But now since I've won, got the justice, and then we've proven as well that it was malicious um, prosecution, they'll now be able to fight as well and see that, you know, it's just not also like the statistics of Black kids being ticketed more than whites. They'll see it's not just them as a pattern that happens. And it's not just in Naperville, it's everywhere. I think, you know, what is so devastating and tragic to me in learning and reading about your story, Amara, when I first read it in ProPublica, was that your story is such an unfortunate example of how something so small and silly as a mistaken case of AirPods could end up becoming a huge burden and problem and issue in an individual's life. And I'm just so sorry that that happened. And I'm, I'm hopeful that now that you're on the other side and that you have been found, you've cleared your name and shown everyone how horrible the system is, that you will be able to move on and pursue what you want to outside of, 
your educational experience and in your last year at Spelman. And and so I guess with that, I wonder what does that look like for you? What do you want your future to look like? What are your dreams? Like future and dreams, um, I guess one of them would be like policy change in the schools. And, you know, so this never happens to anyone again. There's set and clear policies on how to deal with things. And second thing, like, I do want to be a veterinarian, so I do want to go to vet school and um, help as many animals as I can and to open up clinics, not just for dogs and cats, but like, you know, other small animals, like guinea pigs and rabbits and lizards, like whatever you have, you know, so, um, and that it's very affordable for, um, you know, every class, even if you are high class, middle class, low class, you're you're still able to, you know, be able to bring your pet, pet somewhere. So you're able to, you know, go on trips or like, just to go out and your animal will be in safe hands, you know. Now, in her senior year at Spelman College in Atlanta, Amara is moving forward, trying to leave the case and its burden behind her. Her story is one of many that demonstrate the issue of school fees and fines, particularly its disparate effects on Black girls. Gada Makushi is an advocacy and policy strategist for the ACLU of Pennsylvania, who has researched this topic extensively. We asked her what she thought about Amara's story and its resonance with trends in school discipline. Amara's story was heartbreaking. It's one that I have actually followed for quite a while, just because you read it for the first time and you're like, wow, this sounds absolutely ridiculous. And I can't believe that it's been going on for this long. Um, Unfortunately, though, it wasn't a surprise given a lot of the things that we've seen. Um, you know, it's it's one of those stories where you think like, oh, well, if a kid's going to get a ticket or they're going to get in trouble, it's going to be for something serious, right? Um, but we've seen them for throwing a water bottle, for throwing a lollipop, you know? So the fact that she was given this ticket for accidentally picking up a pair of AirPods that she thought were hers, like, it's disappointing, but not surprising. And, you know... As long as I've been doing this work, the immediate reaction is, unfortunately, I can assume without even looking into more detail that this is going to be a Black girl. Yeah. So I want to dig into the racial disparities uh, around Amara's case, but also around school discipline in general, because I think that's a really important piece of this issue. Why do you think that something as simple as a misunderstanding about a pair of missing AirPods rose to this kind of consequence? You know, some of the research that we've looked at, um, and I will talk about, you know, in 2018, um, they did research looking at discipline across the country. And what they found was that, you know, they did a comprehensive analysis of national data and concluded that disciplinary patterns and student engagement with law enforcement were part of this larger continuum, um, that Black students were far more likely to experience disproportionate punishment in all of these, you know, whether it's out-of-school suspensions, in-school suspensions, referrals to law enforcement. And one of those factors that directly directly contributes to the disparities, um, particularly when it comes to Black girls, in addition to implicit bias, is adultification bias. You know, some adults see Black girls as less deserving of the protections traditionally afforded to young people. So they're seen by adults as being older, uh, more mature, 
less in need of nurturing and support. Um, they're also far less likely to be extended leniency or to give them a second chance. So the fact that this was happening to her, you know, falls in line with what we've seen with adultification bias, which is, no, you had to have known better. Even if it was a mistake, you should have known right away, right? There's no um, assumption of innocence, of, you know, being lenient that this is a teenager, this is a young girl who makes a mistake, like we all make a mistake. Um, And so it was more, no, she needs to be punished, there needs to be a consequence. Um, And yeah, unfortunately... This led to three and a half years of her trying to fight it. Uh, And I think the thing that always strikes me about school discipline is actually really not that far off from just real world policing issues that we see all across the country that is in lock and step with just mirroring the same kinds of problems that that we see, whether that's racial bias, whether that's like an overcriminalization uh, a tendency to be extremely punitive, et cetera, et cetera. I think for a lot of folks listening, that might be surprising to hear that students are actually being ticketed within a school context. You know, I think we're more familiar with suspensions, expulsions, but arrests, tickets. A number of stories have come out recently suggesting that punishment is becoming really commonplace in in education and and perhaps even at an unprecedented volume. I'm wondering if you're finding that to be true and at a high level what the state of school discipline looks like today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, school police um, or SROs, if they are contracted with law enforcement um, in their borough or township, have increasingly been uh, at schools, right? So whether that is school districts hiring their own police departments or coming into a you know into a contract with other police, but they're being used to monitor the halls um, to enforce school discipline in a way that wasn't seen twenty or thirty years ago. And just as a point of clarification, so SRO will be the school resource officer, which is a contract with the law enforcement that is in the city. And then an SPO will be a school police officer who is an employee of the district. In the case of Pittsburgh, it's a little even more complicated than that. So our school police officers are part of the teachers union. And so so we have the teachers union backing the police, you know, in terms of wanting them to be involved and to issue summary citations. And so they've become more ingrained in the system. And there's kind of a a blurred line between what is school discipline and what is, you know, a law enforcement issue. What do you make of that? Well, I think there's a lot more discretion and subjectivity when it comes to discipline. And so, you know, one of the things that we have tried to fight against was things like disorderly conduct. Because when discretion is involved, when subjectivity is involved, traditionally it's been used against Black and brown students. Well, when terminology is vague as well, like a, like disorderly, quote-unquote disorderly conduct could mean so many different things based on the perception of the person perceiving the quote-unquote disorderly conduct. And I think, you know, we, we see that across the board within legal settings or policy settings when verbiage is vague. It gives people morally way to be more punitive. Well, and the other thing that I want to make sure to note here um, is that there is lots of research that shows that Black students 
to not have higher rates of misconduct. So it's not that Black students are misbehaving more. Their behavior is not worse than their peers. Um, It's just that they are being disproportionately disciplined for more subjective and discretionary offenses. So I just want to make sure that that is very clear. And I think, you know, with the idea, with I th- that's a really important distinction and clarification, and, and thank you for making that. Gada, I wonder, you know, with the involvement of these student resource officers, with putting police actually in schools, if we're just really exacerbating the school-to-prison pipeline because we're introducing police to students in a way that, like, makes them easier to access and, and therefore makes it easier for them to be seen in a certain way. Oh, absolutely. You know, so as we have seen um, within the community that arrest rates of youth have gone down, they've actually gone up in schools at the same time. Um, and when we find that police are actually situated in the schools, we're finding that more and more students, especially black and brown students, are being arrested or referred to police for very minor things. Um, and in the case of Amara, for example, you know, black students who feel devalued by unfair disciplinary practices are more likely to withdraw and become delinquent. And so it creates this vicious vortex where students in heavily policed environments are less likely to be engaged and more likely to drop out, and youth who drop out are then more likely to be arrested. From state to state, the name of tickets for minor offenses can vary. In Pennsylvania, they're known as summary citations and are a main point of concern for advocates like GADA. Following pressure from the ACLU of Pennsylvania and other community groups, the Pittsburgh public school system issued a moratorium on summary citations. Gada explained the specific impacts of this form of punishment and the danger that it poses to students. Summary citations are completely discretionary. There is is no summary offense at which point the police officer is required to give them a ticket, right? That it is completely discretionary. And what we found in talking to not to law enforcement officers, to school administration, is that they don't actually understand what the impact is of summary citations. They just think it's like a traffic ticket because it sort of looks like a traffic ticket. So basically what they're thinking is like we give the kid a traffic ticket in a sense. Um, they just pay off this fine and then everything is good. But the fact of the matter is that it has long-term consequences. So at least in Pennsylvania, they're adult criminal offenses right? There is no distinction between adults and juveniles in the magisterial district court system. The judge can issue a fine up to, generally it's up to $300. If they don't pay this fine, and it is a huge burden for a lot of families, then it's automatically referred to juvenile justice as a failure to comply. Um, The other thing is that it can't be expunged until six months after turning 18, So if they're 17, you know, just turned 18, they're applying for a job, college, the military, and they have to ask if they've ever been convicted of a crime, they have to say yes. Um, And if they don't, let's say, and it comes up on a background check, then they've probably lost that opportunity. And now they need to rush to a lawyer to figure out how to expunge this from their record. You've co-authored multiple reports regarding Allegheny County in Pennsylvania, which is home to Pittsburgh's Public School District, or PPS. One of those reports finds that PPS students are referred to law enforcement at rates higher than students in 95% of similar U.S. cities. So it feels like Pittsburgh is a hotbed as it relates to student discipline. Why? 
Um, <laughs> so that's something that we've been trying to get at the heart of. I mean, the first thing that we did in the last report that we published last year in 2022, which was about transparency and accountability, was first trying to get the data. Um, because we were finding a lot of inconsistencies. So, for example, to the Civil Rights Data Collection, which is um, out of the Office of Civil Rights, the Federal Office of Civil Rights, all school districts within the United States are required to report on a variety of things. Arrests are one of them every two years. PPS had reported zero arrests for the 27-2018 year. And when we went to look at the juvenile justice data, what we found was there were actually 499 So a huge gap. And what we point to is regardless of which set of data you look at, there are disparities for the last 10 years, for the last decade, when it comes to arrests, citations, and referrals of Black students. When it comes to students with disabilities, we haven't been able to get very clear data. There is a lot of indication that there are disparities there, but it hasn't been tracked well. So the report really focused on gender and race disparities. I want to needle in here on the the disability point really quickly. I think the other confounding variable here is that disability status often requires some kind of diagnosis and that in these school contexts, you know, young children might not have had access to a diagnosis. It's very difficult to diagnose things that pertain to a school setting, whether that's ADHD, they present very differently dependent on each individual kid. And so it makes a lot of sense that disability data would be relatively incomplete. And then I think the additional wrinkle in that is that students of color are significantly less likely to get a diagnosable disability, whether that's because of a lack of healthcare access, a stigma, the, as you said, adultification of Black and brown students. I wonder how much you were able to kind of get into that aspect of disability. Well, I mean, you bring up a good point. So when we talk about disability, especially when it comes to the civil rights data collection, we are talking about kids that have been diagnosed in a sense that have an IEP or a 504 because that's what's counted. So if a child hasn't been diagnosed, then they're not going to be counted as having a disability. Um, and, And so, yeah, obviously we're missing a lot of students and There are a variety of reasons for that. You know, some of it comes down to state funding. State funding will only give funding up to a certain percentage, and we're far above that anyway. And so when we've talked with school districts, what we've said is rather than issue this punishment, whether it's summary citations or referral to law enforcement, really what needs to happen is that determining whether it's a manifestation of the student's disability. And this might be a really simple and stupid question, but... Have you ever heard school officials or law enforcement provide reasons for why they think a summary citation or a suspension, an expulsion, et cetera, is really necessary as far as a form of punishment or what they hope that it will or believe it will accomplish? Yeah, I think what I've heard people say is that kids need discipline and they need consequence. And what we've tried to reiterate over and over again is that consequences and discipline are different than punishment. And again, so when you issue a ticket to a student, and and this probably happens anywhere, um, it usually shows up in the mail like 
up to two weeks later. In the case of youth who um, might be homeless, it might not ever show up. So they may never get notification. And then once you get that, it may be another few weeks or months before you actually go before the magistrate. So at that point, it's like, what is the child learning from this ticket? There has to be a way at the school that you could have resolved this through restorative practices, um, PBIS, through whatever means are already there, rather than criminalizing the child for the behavior. I guess as we pivot to talking about solutions here and where progress perhaps has been made or where we're driving progress, the current 2022 to 2023 PPS Code of Conduct highlights multiple alternatives to issuing a summary citation. What are other other alternatives that we haven't touched on? What kinds of ways can we disrupt these systems in our own schools? For folks who, are, who might be listening, who might be dealing with similar kinds of punitive systems within their own communities. There are a lot of proactive measures that we could be doing. So the restorative practices that some school districts have done, which is like meditation um, in the mornings or circles where you welcome all of the students and the kids talk about how their day has been, what they're bringing into the school with them, you know, in recognition of there's a lot that's going on in your personal life that you are bringing into the school. Let's talk about that. Let's see if there are things that are weighing heavily on you. So maybe you can't concentrate as well. Maybe I need to give you a little bit more grace. And I think we tend to have more grace for adults. And we expect students to perform at a much higher level than we expect of other adults. And it's very unfair. Yeah, I mean, I think especially when you think about the lack of flexibility offered within a school day, you know, we give a lot more flexibility to many different kinds of adult workers. Um, if you think about it, that's a really good point. You know, I think it's really important that students themselves know what their resources are, what their rights are. Are there any frameworks in place to protect students from these disciplinary, these punitive disciplinary measures? It's hard to say in different jurisdictions, but at least in Allegheny County, the juvenile defense attorneys will attend any of these summary citations with any student who has been issued one. So they will go to the magisterial court judge. And I think they, almost 90, between 90 and 100% of the cases where they've been there with a student, they've been dismissed. So like the charges have been dismissed. Um, And it's far less than that when the family tries to do it on their own. Because again, you're not afforded an attorney. So if you want an attorney, it costs money. So this is one of the ways that at least the juvenile defense attorneys have been trying to help youth. They don't get notification of who has issued a summary citation. So you would have to contact them and then they would be able to support that student. In terms of other states or counties, it's a little bit different. And it really depends because it's up to the discretion of the magistrate. It's really difficult. I mean, if If you can get support, if you can have somebody else, an advocate, go with you, that goes a long way. Yeah, absolutely. I think the point about the juvenile defense attorneys is important, even though, you know, it might be specific to Allegheny County. It's worth looking into as far as uh, a resource or a support system or structure around helping students navigate this system. I think 
one of the other things I really wanted to call out is that part of the issue in reforming uh, a, a situation like this or a system like this is that it is very much a patchwork system. We have different rules ap- applying to different people depending on where you live. And that makes things really complicated. And I always think that it's intentionally complicated, which makes it harder for us to mount re- big major resistance efforts. I did want to note one, perhaps, um, I don't know if it's a model piece of legislation. I'm interested to hear what you think about it. But the state of Illinois has introduced in the state House of Representatives a bill was introduced that would stop schools from working with police to issue tickets against students for minor misbehavior like fighting or vaping. Um, It has not passed, has not been signed, um, but... What do you think about the Illinois bill and and do you think that it bodes well for the future of not just Illinois, but other other states as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the type of thing that I would like to see happen in every state in the same way that some states have passed um, like a ban on suspensions for young kids, whether it's pre-K through third grade or pre-K through fifth grade. But it is really hard when it's piecemeal and you have to go to this school district and then that school district. You know, you take Pennsylvania, we have 500 school districts, right? Trying to do them all one by one. Um, So at a state level makes far more sense. Um, Yeah, I would love to see it pass in Illinois. I would like to see it come to other states as well because I think that that's the direction that we need to be heading in. Illinois legislators and activists are rewriting the bill that would end student ticketing in schools, seeking to pass it in the next legislative session. But with another school year underway and without necessary protections, we're likely to see students continue to be targeted, fined, and engaged in lengthy legal battles, if they can afford it. Amara lent her advice for students going through situations similar to hers. You're really not alone because I thought I was alone, but I, you know, had people come in very supportive. And my mom, she was with me. You know, she pretty much, you know, did everything for me because as I was a minor, so I didn't understand what was happening. So she was there, you know. Shout out to your mom. She sounds like a pretty fierce advocate. Yeah. And um, she was the one, you know, calling newspapers, trying to find attorneys for me that would take on the case. Um, But they were like asking for like a a very large amount of money that we did not have. And she would just reassure me, you know, you'll be okay. We'll get through this. We prayed. We had our church pray for us. And then I was able to get the attorneys, Mr. Um, Yuri, Mr. Um, Thomas, you know, they helped me a lot with getting the justice and the victory that I have now because no other attorney would. So, like, just to them, like, to the person, if they are going through this or if they um, did go through this, you know, you just have to find your tribe and trust and believe there will be people that you don't even know that will still come out to help you. And if I got through it, you'll get through it, so... Yeah, if I was able, I was able to get my life back now after four years. So it doesn't really matter how long you go through it. Just know you'll always come out and prevail in justice if you know your truth and everything. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. At Liberty is a production of the ACLU, produced by me, Kendall Seesmeyer, and Vanessa Handy. This episode was edited by Matt Boynton. Until next week, stay strong.